Kelly and I were thinking, I guess it was yesterday, or maybe breakfast time this morning about what we should, uh, what should be covered in the evening talk, and somehow we both thought pain. (laughs) 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 And it's interesting, in Buddhist crowds it always gets a laugh. Yeah, no, I don't think it gets the same kind of laugh in other crowds. There is an <clears throat> article written by Wes Nisker, who's a pretty funny guy, and he's a Dharma teacher, mostly at Spirit Rock, and, um, and a, an author and, and a, a comedian, journalist. He's had a couple different lives. Um, but he wrote this one column about firsters versus thirdsters in terms of people's orientation around the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, some people are firsters, like they're really into, there is dukkha. And some people really like the third, there's an end to dukkha. And that's something maybe we need to look at, and we can do that tonight, just sort of our relationship. Because part of embodiment and just honoring this great teacher of ours, this present moment reality of embodiment is pain is not the exception. Pain is just part of the territory of human life, emotional pain, physical pain, mental pain, spiritual pain. And so it makes a lot of sense. In fact, I feel we really have rights to demand that our teachers, our sort of wise spiritual ancestors, I think we have rights to demand it. You know, if if you're going to be my spiritual ancestor, you have to have something to say about pain, how to relate to pain, how to be wise with pain, what to do with human pain. And, you know, if a tradition doesn't sort of have something practical, liberating to say about pain, well, what's the point? <laughs> I mean, really, because it's, it is that central to our lives. What do we do with pain? How do we relate to it? How do we hold it? What is it even? There's a... <clears throat> story, a teaching story that I used to use quite a bit, especially in the intro class. I don't tell it as much anymore. Probably many of you have heard me say it, or maybe other people, but I think I heard it first from Ed Brown, who's one of the um, early Zen students of Suzuki Roshi at the San Francisco Zen Center. He wrote the Tassahara Bread Book, which back in my day, in the 70s when that first came out it was like all the cool people had the Tassahara bread book (laughs) and were making a sort of they had this way of you kind of make a little seed of the dough get it going and then you add a lot to that and somehow it was a very efficient way to make good homemade bread I used to do that a lot And uh, so the story is, you know, probably completely made up, but a farmer went to see the Buddha 
and uh, took a while to find the Buddha, but eventually tracked the Buddha down. And he had a lot of complaints because of the difficulty in his life, the difficulty with the farm animals and the difficulty with the weather and the difficulties with his family and just one thing after another, getting older, his own mind, comparing mind, comparing himself, herself to the neighbor whose farm is so much more together. And so when the farmer finally had their chance, they spelled it all out to the Buddha, basically complaining and really, you know, expecting the Buddha to have something to say about pain, about difficulty in life. <clears throat> and the Buddha said, everybody has 84 problems. <laughs> what can I say? You know, if I, even if I had some kind of answer for one of your particular problems, you would just get another problem because everybody has 84 problems. Or 83 problems, I guess, is, is to be consistent. And so, as you would imagine, the farmer was upset. They stormed off, running away, like, what the hell is this about? You know, what, everyone talking about this person, and he has no advice. These are very pragmatic issues. If he doesn't have anything to say about this, of what value are his teachings? So the farmer storms off, and just before he's out of earshot, the Buddha calls out and says, well, I can't help you with your 83 problems, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. Right? So he was complaining about 83 things. And so that, he was desperate, the farmer. So he turns around, he goes back, okay, what's my 84th problem? And the Buddha said, well, you don't like having 83 problems. <laughs> that, that's a problem I can help you with. Right? You have a problem with embodiment. You have a problem with the unreliable and uncertain and the messiness of embodiment, of having a body, having a sensitive heart, having relationship, living in a world that in many ways is defined <clears throat> by our conditioning around power and survival, or what we imagine as survival. And, and sort of uh, the ways we throw people out of our hearts in order to feel powerful, to feel safe. Of course, it doesn't work. So we all have 83 or 8,300 or 83,000 problems. And spiritual teachings are really about the 84th like having a problem, having problems, having a problem with having problems, having a problem with the unreliable, uncertain, vulnerable, painful movements in life. You know, the, if you haven't figured it out, we are sensitive and uh, we have a lot of inefficient and ineffective ways of dealing with our sensitivity. You know, we're sensitive creatures, and a lot of these 
unconscious strategies for managing sensitivity, well, we're sensitive to how ineffective they are, and it doesn't really change the fact that we're sensitive. I'll read a little from a talk I heard Tony Packer give. It was a recorded talk. Tony Packer is a, was a well-known Dharma teacher. Started out in the Zen tradition and then didn't like sort of being defined by a particular tradition. So she stopped calling herself a Zen teacher and went forth maybe would say I'm an awareness teacher. But... Um, she was quite, I thought, a quite powerful teacher through her books and recorded talks. Had a center in upstate New York called Springwater. I think it may, might still be there. And uh, <clears throat> I forget how long ago she died, but it wasn't that long ago. But one of the things she says is that Nobody consciously chooses to be numb. You know, we're sensitive beings, but we definitely unconsciously choose or unconsciously fall into basic different ways of being disconnected, being disembodied. You know, stressful ways of repressing or hiding from our sensitivity not wanting to feel, right? I mean, it wouldn't it be easy for us to brainstorm many ways, like just in our own life, how we keep ourselves on the surface of things, how we keep ourselves distracted or unaware, being too busy, even like getting really dramatic about something painful, can be a strategy to avoid feeling the pain. So even like becoming a Buddhist and becoming really into naming pain can be a bypass. I think humans, you know, there's probably, well maybe other creatures in other realms of existence, other planets, wherever, but we're pretty good at bypassing. You know, it's just amazing how many different ways we have of... It's like the sensitivity is right here, but how to be oblivious to what's right here. Like the heart aches, that's right here. This embodied broken-heartedness, tender-heartedness aching-heartedness. It's right here. But how many ways, stressful, all of them, we have to not feel what we're feeling, to not have an honest, intimate relationship with that pain. And I think it really, it's deserving of a, a really serene sense of humor about that. Like, actually let it break our heart even more, that truth, that we've been basically running from our life, hiding from our life. And then, of course, because of that, our life feels so flat, so 
you know, empty of meaning, that we become susceptible to whatever salesperson shows up selling us a bill of goods about Buddhism even, you know, or about, you know, taking a cruise or ecotourism or playing an instrument. I mean, these things aren't necessarily bad, any of them, but if we're expecting our next passion, whatever it might be, to really protect us, it's just a layering of stress because if even the most wholesome thing, if the intention is to bypass or to hide from what's here, well, you know, it uh, it gets corrupted even if it would otherwise be a beautiful thing. You know, somebody could be building and uh, cultivating the most beautiful garden with only native plants and <clears throat> sort of a one person sort of uh, pushback against the insect apocalypse. I can't tell you how many articles I've seen in the last six months about the insect apocalypse. I don't know if you've read it. It's kind of frightening. It's like nobody thought to that we would ever have a problem of all the insects dying. And so they never really, like with other larger species, you know, they bird watchers go out and they do these counts and we've got, you know, surveys of how many wolves and things like that. But some, I think it was some grad student not that long ago, um, there was some data where people did a drive and then they counted the number of dead insects on their windshield, something like that. And <clears throat> there was just this sort of casual, like, doesn't seem to be like it used to be when we were kids. Like, I don't know if you remember, when I was a kid, you know, we'd take a vacation, we had a screen that my dad would put in the front of the car to catch all the bugs. Now, I've driven through the country. How many insects do you see on your grill? or in your car, not that many, or your windshield. But when back in the late 50s and 60s, there used to be a lot. So why was I talking about the insect? <laughs> you win the prize if you have the answer to that. I'm sure it was there for a reason. Oh, the gardener, yeah. So, like, thank you. You get, you win the prize. Yeah, so that, like, even somebody who is, like, that integrated and doing such a cool thing, beautiful garden, giving a little <clears throat> ecosystem for the local insects to thrive, the plants, local plants to thrive, people to feel refreshed, but even something as healing, as beautiful as that can be spiritual bypass, right? Like filling the mind with, because, you know, things like a garden, there's always something to do, there's always something to think about, and you can think about the next season and what needs to be mulched for the winter, and there's no end 
to thinking about that. Same with people who are parents and and being a good parent, or people who have pets and being a good pet owner. And so we can use these seemingly wholesome activities to keep from feeling what we feel and having an honest relationship. I, it's amazing how many times I have to make a really strong case to really sincere practitioners not to go on another Buddhist retreat or not to do, you know, to pick up another book or to check out another Buddhist lineage or this or that. But I'll say, and I'll make a really strong case, you need to <clears throat> periodically clear half a day and just hang out. You just sit on the couch. You can kind of fumble around the house, but you can't pick up a project. Okay, I'm going to, you know, it's fine to put the dishes away or little things, but you're just hanging out and you're going to specifically notice how hard that is and you're going to get interested in why that's so hard. What are you afraid to run into? And that four hours that are unformed, unstructured, where you're just hanging out on the couch, hanging out outside, not doing much of anything. I mean, it can really feel like, we call it like I'm just stagnating, life is passing me by. But what really, you know, it's that rare event where we don't really have a good defense and we realize there's some unfinished business the heart, the body, it has some feeling. In a way, it's like our body, it has its own intelligence, it has its own coherence, as if, I think it's useful to think, it's talking to us. And sometimes, you know, if we really stay disconnected, disembodied, sometimes the body will really scream, you know, like we'll get really sick. Now, sometimes we get really sick for all kinds of reasons, right? But sometimes the reason is the body's been trying to get our attention. The heart's been trying to get our attention and we didn't, we haven't really wanted to listen. So then something will happen and we won't have a choice. I mean, in a way, we always have a choice, because even when, you know, the body speaks up, we can get obsessed about fixing the body instead of sort of letting the unattended wounds, the brokenness, the unresolved pain, you know, the qualities of vulnerability and all that is <clears throat> moving in our heart and in our body just to let it speak, to say what it has to say, to move. So this is a lot of what we do on retreats, it's a lot of what we do in sits. And even when we're 
doing sort of a more exclusive meditation practice, really focusing on a particular meditation object, we're just preparing the ground for doing that exposure practice. You know, we're cultivating the confidence, the stability of awareness and the confidence in the stability of awareness, the kindness of awareness, the um, stability of awareness to just be exposed to life, to embodiment, to the way that it is, to what's moving. So it's really good not to think of those exclusive practices that are so good to do or the loving-kindness practices that we do in different ways where we're getting a lot of seclusion or really abiding in more expansive, still or peaceful states. That, that that work, that really important work is to prepare the ground to be undefended, you know, to be clearly aware, wide awake, willing to feel, willing to let the body say what it has to say. And, and, and that's really a step toward letting the world say what it has to say, letting our partner and our friends and our petty tyrants, you know, the people that irritate us or worse, right? Letting them, letting all that move, letting them all have their say. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, stupid and let people walk all over us, but we're learning to actually embody the world that we embody, live in the world we live in, which is quite messy, right? When people are really hurting, when people are really disconnected, then they're capable of being really mean, right? We have our own experience of that. When we've been really disconnected long enough and have been hurt unconsciously often because of that disconnection, we can say things and do things that with the intention to cause harm. And certainly do it unconsciously, but we can even, you know, is there anybody in this room, you know, and this is, you would think, a pretty, generally speaking, a pretty good group of people who have been cultivating more wholesome qualities. But is, is there any one of us who can't remember times when we've intentionally wanted to hurt someone? wanted somebody to suffer. So that kind of puts us in the camp of all those people that we feel so easily, uh, find so easy to judge, you know, and think that they're somehow, those are the evil doers, you know. But it's really just a matter of degree. So the, the way to think of embodiment and pain, emotional pain, unresolved, unacknowledged pain, the brokenheartedness, is to see this as our teacher, our teachers, 
Like because you know, we have these refuge refuges that Shelley talked about, the opening night, the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And it really is this like when we're sensitive but we don't trust the sensitivity. We basically think God made a mistake making us so sensitive or making the world so rough, so uncertain, so mean. Somebody made a mistake. So because somebody made a mistake, it's easy to justify life strategies of like, I just don't want to be here when I'm here. I'm alive, I'm sensitive, I'm in relationship, but I can't really be here. And that's totally understandable because to just function, we're going to need more than a few skills of um, not paying attention or distraction. I mean, there's no... There's no really getting on the path and developing some deeper trust in the experience of embodiment without having enough strategies to distance ourselves, to turn away from pain temporarily. We all need those skills. And there are some you know, relatively toxic ways of doing that or counterproductive ways of distracting ourselves and relatively useful ways. Like when things get too rich on retreat, too much is moving, right? It can be really useful to go take a walk or shovel snow or pick up an extra yogi job or do some mindful movement, some yoga, some tai chi, just play with your body. Yeah, work and play, you know, service, productive work and productive play, two of the best go-to places when we're feeling overwhelmed. We don't feel like we have the resources, the internal resources to honestly acknowledge what we're feeling right now. And in taking up one of those strategies, you know, we would want to acknowledge exactly what we're doing. I don't know if I can handle this now. I know someday I aspire to being able to turn toward, relax with, be interested, be intimate, trust this movement in my heart, in my body. But every time I take a step in that direction and turn my attention to this pain, I freeze up or I freak out. And there's that <clears throat> predictable, like a buildup of energy, like a panic attack kind of thing. So then we know, okay, so what can I do? What is my heart, my mind willing to absorb into? What would be relatively wholesome activity, object, so that in doing that, in being aware of that, 
I would be cultivating present moment awareness, I'd be cultivating kindness, I'd be able to practice being unafraid, right? So that's why play or work, or if you've developed your concentration, you can go into a very secluded meditation space. Toward the end of his life, when the Buddha's body was really aching, he had a bad back and other sort of ailments. You know, remember, he lived outside for most of his adult life. He left when he was in his late 20s, his very comfortable life, and basically just camped for the next, uh, until he was 85, I think it was, when he died. So, you know, his body was hurting. He he referred to it as... uh, like an old cart held together with bamboo strips, <laughs> you know, just getting by, in other words. Sometimes in the middle of a talk, he'd just need to lie down because it was hurting, his body was hurting so much, and he'd ask one of his senior students to take over and finish the talk. And once he said to Ananda, his attendant, who was much younger than him, you know, it's only when he's in deep concentration does he feel like he has some real space from the painful sensations of old age? So we need these strategies just to manage. It's like very impactful for me to read how the Buddha continued to use these strategies to deal with difficulty. Even in the community, like when they're, when the monks were just being nuts and fighting over some s- stuff, they had, it just didn't make sense to fight over. You know, there's a schism in the Sangha, and they were being petty. And the Buddha explained to them, you know, what they should do, but they told, oh, sir, please, don't worry yourself over this. <laughs> So you can just imagine the Buddha rolling his eyes and he, for a month or so he just took off into the woods and was by himself. I mean, you know, these stories you never know. Because there was an elephant too that had gotten tired of the herd. And so it was just the Buddha and the elephant and it was convenient because the elephant... See, I forget exactly if, the, if monks can pick up fruit that has fallen but they can't pick fruit, I'm pretty sure about that. And I'm not even sure they can pick up fruit that's fallen, like in the wild. But anyway, the, they can receive fruit from people, and I guess elephants. Because <laughs> the elephant <laughs> picked fruit and <laughs> offered it to the Buddha so he could be out. Because, you know, monks and nuns can't, they can't store food. So, because the, 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 the way the Buddha set it up, he wanted it to be a, that he wanted people to be in relationship with each other and the messiness of relationship. So they had to each day walk into town if they wanted to eat and receive some food from people who respected them enough to feed them. And so it really, so to do this, the Buddha was reliant on this elephant. So, you know, he had, a, he had his own ways, you know, sitting every day, deep concentration, walking practice, 
seclusion, just going off by himself for periods of time, when he needed that space. And it's that developing those skills, both the samadhi, the concentration, using loving-kindness practice in a way that really resonates for us, where we can find our way back to really wholesome places. Like I said, service, generous activity, work, wholesome work, play. We need like a couple handfuls of these kinds of go-to activities for ourselves so that we're developing confidence. We don't always want to be the person who's been cornered by pain, by emotional pain, where we have no move but to turn toward it. I mean, every once in a long while, those moments can be quite cathartic when we're trapped and there's no escape. And if there were, we'd take the escape, but we can't think of anything. Any attempt to escape makes it worse. So we submit to our teacher whether it's physical pain or painful emotion or whatever it might be. But generally speaking, it works better when we're consciously participating and turning toward the pain. We're actually curious. And part of what allows us to be curious, actually interested, is knowing that we have a few tricks we can't avoid it forever. That's the voice of wisdom. We learn that. Like whatever pain, whatever uncertainty there is in the world, it's only a matter of time before we experience that kind of loss, that kind of betrayal, that kind of physical pain. Or at least it's useful to keep that in mind, that it's probably coming our way. But some of the time, we can dance a little, like orbit around the pain. We know the pain is there. We keep it on our shoulder. That fear of death is there. That painful relationship that we don't know what to say or what to do, and it hurts so much. You know, one of the places that this can be is when someone close to us is really suffering and we really don't want them to suffer. But it's not in our power to do, to alleviate their suffering. And it's, we can't really be there because when we're really close, we just want to fix them. You know, or we want it to go away. We're, we're averse to their suffering. So one of the things about orbiting is like we're just, we're not pretending that the heart doesn't hurt. We're not pretending that the heart isn't broken with this experience as what's part of embodiment, part of this life. But just because it's there doesn't mean I have to just bear my soul or my, you know, thin skin. We can we can know it's off in a distance. We can have some space. But we just want to know what we're doing. Even metta, loving-kindness practice, can sometimes have that flavor 
<clears throat> where we're using the words themselves to keep from getting too close. It's not sort of ultimately how we use loving-kindness practice or compassion practice, but just the form, the structure, the repetition can be useful. Or another thing we do sometimes is instead of having the person that the heart really cares about, that's just really the relationship that's really alive for us, front and center, we force that person to be there with a lot of other people. Right? So we see that person, we know our heart aches, our heart's confused, but we remember there are lots of people in my life, and I care about all of them. So that can be another way to kind of <clears throat> realize that the mind, the heart has some skills about how to modulate the exposure. Because one of the unhealthy habits um, can be to, you know, some version of, I just want to get this, I just want to be done with this. And then we tend to, you know, we pretend that we're fearless. This is actually more common than you might imagine in Buddhist circles. Because people who've been practicing for a while have real success turning toward what's difficult to turn toward. And then they overuse that strategy. That's sort of their go-to thing. Something difficult is there, I'm going to open to it. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to go right into the center. I'm going to breathe into it. I'm going to lay down. I'm going to die to it. And the thing is, it does work sometimes when the mind is actually curious and unafraid, then the mind, wisdom, because love is willing to include it completely, really show up without a stance, then wisdom sees that experience as it actually is. It's just part of the dance of everything, the totality. So the broken-heartedness, wherever our mind screams, no, this is not okay, you know, it, that, those places that are so painful, so hard to bear, that push us around, that cause us to strike out, they always involve our stories. It's the stories that we are telling ourselves to help manage the pain that make the pain unbearable. So the reason it actually works to turn toward pain is when it, that Buddha, that wakefulness, that love and wise present, loving and wise presence, that's the Buddha, when Buddha is actually there, then Buddha can meet the experience of embodiment or dharma the way it is, the brokenheartedness. But when Buddha's not there, then our work is having an honest relationship with what's moving 
but to be building, be cultivating the Buddha, right? Wakefulness, the stability and confidence and loving kindness of awareness, mindful awareness. A lot of the work we're doing isn't turning to pain as much as it is developing the kind of heart that will be capable of turning toward pain. But because, you know, maybe it's part of just being a Westerner, you know, being in a hurry, not wanting to feel pain, you know, we go right to the solution, which is, I know what the solution is because I read it. <laughs> you know, and we, we hear it a lot as instruction, you know, open, open to the way it is, open to the pain, acknowledge it. <clears throat> we want to go right there. But the more relevant and interesting question is, what heart, what kind of heart, what kind of mind is capable of having an honest, intimate relationship with pain? How does one uncover or how does one cultivate that kind of heart, mind, that naturally, organically will include, will be intimate with whatever shows up. So a lot of the, you know, coming back to the ordinary experience of the body or coming back to the breath, coming back to hearing, coming back to walking, coming back to eating, coming back and noticing the thinking mind is just the thinking mind these very ordinary moments during our retreat, is we're really developing that beautiful heart, that stable, wise and kind, beautiful heart, that can really appreciate Dhamma, embodiment as our teacher. Like that marriage of... um, It's really the coming together of intimacy and the wildness of embodiment, the wildness of brokenheartedness, of all the appropriate wounds from having been a sensitive human being, but not having the kind of heart that could digest our experience as we were living it, right? So we hid the pain away tucked it away here and there, the great receptacle of the body, mostly, right? And it lives on, you know, as this felt bodily, underlying feeling here in the body, and, and, and to a large degree in all the numbness, all the ways the body expresses itself as not feeling. This is from Joko Beck. With unfailing kindness, your life always presents what you need to learn. Whether you stay at home or work in an office or whatever, the next teacher is going to pop right up. (laughs) And the question is, are we going to be ready? You know, are we going to be ready 
when our next teacher pops up? Are we doing that prep work? It's kind of like, you know, as meditators, as students of the Buddha, Dharma students, folks interested in cultivating this beautiful heart. I love the word that Shelley mentioned, that ardency of the heart. That kind of fullness. It's like this is our own experience of Buddha, right? This heart, like we we definitely sense it in moments or more in moments. The heart that really feels like it's not afraid to be alive. And we definitely know the opposite, like when our heart really doesn't seem ready to be alive. And we really, you know, we want to go in the bed and put the covers over our head or turn the TV on. But we just want seclusion from life, right? And we don't care really how inefficient the distraction or counterproductive the distraction, you know, like just getting drunk or whatever, you know, the relatively unhealthy ways of escaping. So we know that we want to get to know that spectrum, like be able to locate how's the heart doing. This heart doesn't have much capacity Right? So what wisdom does, what love and wisdom does, is it takes care of a heart that doesn't have much capacity. Right? So who should we be around? What friends should we be around? What friends should we not be around? What situations are to be avoided? What situations are relatively safe? What activities would be good? What activities... And, and how then... Like getting to safety when we're relatively safe, then in that place we can start building capacity. You know, if I'm in my bed under my covers in my safe space, I might be willing to acknowledge my heart's hurting. But if I have to be out in public, especially in a social situation and make chit chat, it's like I cannot. It's very hard for me to have an honest relationship with my pain. You know, I'm just dealing with the tension, the social tension in social situations. I'm just in survival mode, right? There's not enough safety in my heart to do this deeper work. So when we get enough safety, we're always interested in building Capacity, because whatever safety we have is a conditioned event. It can change, right? So we want to take advantage of the safety we have to develop the heart's confidence to be awake, to meet embodiment, to be undefended, to be actually interested in what's moving, what's coming and going. And to use some of the Dharma tools, like seeing the changing nature, seeing that whatever the pain is, 
it's a movement. Seeing that the thought, this is too much, I can't take this, that that's just a thought. Right? So then we, that's how we develop capacity. It's, it's both from the samadhi effect, like just feeling good on the inside, just that calm. But it's also developing the love and the wisdom, the compassion in particular, and the wisdom, so that they have a force, momentum in our heart, like that, that capacity to frame things as a movement of nature. Oh yeah, this is how it is sometimes. Really painful memories arise, and they're like this, and they last a while, and then they go away. That is in no way being disrespectful of the pain, to sort of state the truth. This will pass. I've been in uh, similar, really difficult states, and it passed. This might pass too. Maybe this will also pass. Maybe this is just pain being numb. You know, like if we say that when we're not feeling safe, it's a real slap in the face. You know, hey, it's like you can imagine a friend or a teacher saying that when we're feeling cornered by our pain and someone says to us, it's just pain. <laughs> you know, at the right time, from the right place, that can be such a powerful reminder. But if we're not safe, it's not helpful. What's helpful is some word, some instruction that helps a person find safety, where they can relax, where they can again trust openness and relaxation and letting life move. That's why things like service, like going and helping somebody, because it's like when we get into that, just the physical activity, we feel like in the simple way we have some purpose, we can contribute. It's like that's a good feeling. So maybe I can relax and like trust being, trust feeling what I'm feeling because it's a relatively wholesome feeling to be contributing, to be helping, to be doing some work. Even something that simple. It's like, we don't think of that, like, but when you're doing your yogi job, like how nice it is to clean the bathroom for everyone, or to chop the vegetables for everyone, you know, to put out the soup, or whatever it is your job is. And to really let that good feeling in, and have it build capacity, like the safety, and then we use the safety to have a more integrated and honest and intimate connection with the moment, right? And then we're less dependent on the safety, right? So then <clears throat> it sort of gives us more options, like how we navigate the day. This is that passage from Tony Packer. Maybe I'll end here.
someone mentioned that through the course of a retreat, she began to open to this intense pain in her being. Although it was very painful, it also felt wonderful to be feeling. Feeling, being alive, is almost always chosen over being numb or repressed. If, this is a big if, we are conscious of the choice. Still, there may be times when shutting down is an act of self-protection. The problem is when this becomes a habit. It is done automatically. So we choose numbness without being aware of the implications of the choice. The more disconnected we have been, the more frightening it can be to open again and to feel. And then I just sort of took some notes when I was listening to the talk, so this is sort of skipping down later in the talk. How to be with pain. Start out by not knowing. Watch the ever so subtle attempts by the body and mind to push it away, as if to say, I can't stand this. Don't assume this voice. Seeing things wisely means seeing the potential contraction before it fully arises and dominates. Because it is seen and felt, it loses its seductive power. Right? So this is this kind of strategy works from a place of relative safety. And she goes a little later, unconfuse yourself by starting with not knowing. Everything leads to everything in this work. I don't know how one can give it up once one has gotten into it. It's ungiveupable. <laughs> the body recoils. Somehow we live under the assumption that the pain is dangerous. So let's just take a few seconds with that. Very interesting comment. And let go of the words. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.